Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello and welcome to Album Clash. I'm the dandy highwayman who you're too scared to mention. I spend my cash on looking flash and grabbing your attention. <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> I do not have an introduction for myself as um, as verbose as that, so I'm going just with I'm Kev. Say <laughs> just something new. I'm trying. Yeah. Hi everyone. Welcome to the first episode of. Is this our fifth class? Class number five? I believe it is, yeah. So, yeah. And uh, we are now... So, today's date is the 9th of April, 2021. And so, we are officially published. Um, So, our our very first episode was released yesterday. So, genuinely, thank you very much to people who've listened to it. Because we know there are some of you. It means a hell of a lot. So, uh, if you're still with us nine weeks later, then... Fair play to you. Yeah, I mean, well done for hanging in because I I know that we may go a little off topic. If you, as, <laughs> as we I think may have said in one of our first ones, if you're looking for a very dry, uh, mojo style deep dive into these albums, this is not the podcast for you. If you're no. looking for ephemera and basically all the shite around the album and possibly some vague reference to 1980s adverts. This is the place for you. Exactly that. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, Kev, this was your choice, this clash. So what are we going through and what connects them? This uh, clash is going to be between Lou Reed's Transformer and Iggy Pop's uh, debut, The Idiot. And essentially, the link between the clash is the producer. It's David Bowie. And we will... Whilst he's on production duties, he is all over both these albums. His influence writ large in the songwriting, in the performing, in everything. So basically, we're we're going to be talking about Bowie without doing a Bowie album and trying to also talk about the rock tortoise, Lou Reed, and um, James James Osterberg, better known as Iggy Pop. And I think, as, as you said last week when you first introduced this clash, that... So that they, they they were released five years apart, these albums, and the sound of the albums really is reflective of what Bowie's sound itself was at, at the times. Yeah, without, uh, there's there's no doubt about that. It it speaks to his journey and where, where he was up to at the point of these recordings, so much so that when we get on to uh, speaking about The Idiot, it basically is a forerunner for the album that comes after, the the Bowie album that comes after. Oh, yes, it it very much is. So this week's show, we're going to go through Transformer, and I believe you're going to take us through that, yes? I will do. Like This is uh, the first time that I will be leading off The Clash. Um, But before we get into into that, it's the always popular, uh, well, I don't know if it's popular, but we're going to assume... Popular with us, and that's all that matters. Yeah, Um, the popular feature... Can't get you out of my head. So, Tim, what shite and what good have you come across in since we since we last spoke? Right, let's go through the shite first. So, <laughs> I was listening the other day to um, Sam Fender's debut album, Hypersonic Missiles. That's not the shite. 
that's genuinely as a really good album and i'd like us to go through that on this show at one point because it's really good but there's a song on hypersonic missiles called saturday it's a song around you know working class people working through the day working through the week sorry needing the weekend to come so yeah the line in the chorus is if saturday don't come soon i'm gonna lose my mind that put me in mind of the u2 song and i love u2 but the song from their 2000 2009 album no line on the horizon i'll go crazy if i don't go crazy tonight The title of which just makes me cringe. I hate that song. I hate it. I mean, I don't know that song particularly well, but the title makes makes my skin crawl. Like every time I've heard that title, part of my insides die. Yep. So you've probably heard it more than you think. You might remember that back in 2009, so before you two join forces with Apple to launch a malware attack on uh, every single Apple user in the world. <laughs> they they actually partnered with BlackBerry as well. And there was a commercial for BlackBerry, uh, which featured that song. And the commercial ended with the slogan, BlackBerry loves you too. Awful. I mean, like there are many bands that you can criticize for commercial tie-ins. You two are corporate whores. Oh, God, yeah. They are. They I are. mean, they, I mean, you just think of the iPod. Um, yep. oh, there's so, so, so much whoring. Making poverty history for the four <laughs> members of you two. <laughs> exactly. Oy, making tax revenues history for the Irish government as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so any, a terrible song, which, once again, just like last time, I was reminded of by listening to a much better song, so... Very annoying. What about you? What shit have you not been able to get out of your head? Are you? I presume you are aware of the American comedy series Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yes. So the, there is an episode where at the because they have an opening joke before the before the titles. So the opening to it, it the lead character uh, played by Andy Samberg, uh, Jake Peralta, it has a lineup of five five criminals, and the premise is that. One of them was singing the Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way. And each <laughs> each member of the lineup sings a line in it. And ever since I've seen that, I've had I Want It That Way stuck in my head. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a heartache. Oh, that's nice. Listen, hey, we work well together. Like, you know, when, when we're allowed, to, you know, back, back around town, uh, karaoke's a calling there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it is a song that is very catchy, like gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. All right. So that's the shite. It's good stuff. So this week, my tip of the hat is something which is, I tell you, it's right up your alley. It's a Welsh three-piece from Monmouthshire. Not Again, not far from where I live, actually, called The Bug Club. Okay. And they are... Well, basically, they're a fantastic garage band. Oh. So think the White Stripes, the Strokes, Pixies, Yuck, all rolled into one. I, I, well, all those, thing, all, all those things are good things. I am happy. I am liking this combination. Yeah, really, really good. So the, their debut EP, uh, Launching Moon Dream 1, is being released on digitally on the 30th of April. Uh, at the moment, there's two songs from that which are available to stream. They're called 
checkmate and we don't need room for loving the longest of which comes in at a colossal two minutes and 14 seconds exactly the correct length I've, i first heard them on mark riley's show on six music so that tells you everything you need to know that, again usually most things that i like that are of that genre i will discover via mark riley so I'm very excited to, to come across these. Yeah, so honestly, mate, check them out. They're really good. Uh, and as I said, right up your street. What about you? Okay, I've got something not new. I've got something old. The song that I've not been able to get out of my head is given... So Tim obviously mentioned the date that we're recording. So Prince Philip has uh, died today. Um, however, the song that, that I have not been able to get out of my head and I had this written a few days ago Candle in the Wind <laughs> it's The Crown by the GB Experience featuring Gary Bird it's a absolutely boss bit of early 80s rap uh, released on Motown and Stevie Wonder plays on it it's it's very sort of uh, Sugar Hill Gang it's all kinds of good it's funky oh. it's boss I like I would not invoke the, the Sugar Hill Gang if I did not think that it was its boss. Check it out; it's so good. So again, to copy what you were saying, you've said there Motown, Stevie Wonder, funky early eighties rap, Sugar Hill Gang. Yes, please. I'll have everything on the menu. You will thank me when you when you listen to it. I promise. Okay, so um, really good stuff. That is what we can't get out of our head this week. So. Shall we start going through Transformer? Indeed we shall. Over to you. Transformer by Lou Reed was released in November 1972. And I think really to talk about this album, you've got to talk about the background. So it was released on RCA. So after the breakup of the Velvet Underground, uh, Lou Reed decamped to uh, London to record his debut solo album. And he also said at the time it was to in a very Lou Reed way, to get out of the New York thing. So the debut al- the debut solo album, called Lou Reed, uh, was recorded in April 1972. Now, the ma- this is the mad thing about um, this period in the, in the 70s. In the, his debut album was recorded in April 72. Transformers recorded in November 72. That's not, that's not a long turnaround at all. Uh, no. Interestingly, on the on this uh, debut solo, solo album, another link to Bowie, Rick Wakeman played on it as a session musician, and um, well, as he's been dining out on for years, also played the piano part on Life on Mars. We're talking Rick Wakeman from Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are talking Yes is Rick Wakeman. Well, there you go. I did not know that. Sorry. Please carry on. Uh, the album performed quite poorly uh, commercially, and it was poorly critically received. So RCA, the record company, pushed for a collaboration with um, Bowie at the time. Bowie, who who was a massive Velvet Underground fan, um, he'd gone over to New York, um, had written a song about Andy Warhol, had written a song about the Velvet Underground, had covered various Velvet Underground songs, including White Lights, White Heat, which the, the, the cover that's on the Bowie BBC sessions is an absolute cracker. Yeah, he was a, so he was a huge fan, and the the record company basically said, "You're dead hot at the minute." Obviously, he at the time he produced uh, Mott the Hoople's, uh, all the young dudes, and reinvigorated their career. So he was hot at the minute. Said, "Can will you will you get together?" And this is how the album sort of came about, really. So uh, sorry to interject. Are we not also hot on the heels of 
Ziggy Stardust around this time as well. Yes, it is very is very much Ziggy era Bowie, which is important to the sound of this album, and also yeah. one of the two of the key other people involved in it. So Mick Ronson, the guitarist from the Spiders from Mars, who is a phenomenal guitarist. Oh yeah, like the guitar solo on Moon Age Daydream is Oof, phenomenal, dreamy, and the pro- uh, producer of uh, Ziggy Stardust, which was Ken Scott, he was also enlisted. Uh, on production duties as an as engineer. So Mick Ronson, as as I mentioned, was the member was a member of Bowie's backing bands. He served as the primary session musician, as you can hear all over this album, mm-hmm. and also acted as the arranger for the strings. And that was particularly important for for some of the songs. Lou Reed on the much much mocked, but they are really quite they are quite good classic album documentary series. Lauded Ronson's work on the album, praising the beauty of his work and particularly how he how he mixed the vocal track and obviously working working with others to mix the vocal track lower to accentuate the strings in in some songs that's incredibly important and i mean they i like i find this absolutely staggering the album itself was recorded over 10 days wow. 10 days at trident studios in london um in august so, he, like his albums come out in April. By August, they finished recording. It's only like they've got to mix it and then press it, and it's out in November. Like the speed that that's got turned around in is like will make Henry Ford impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so not the last time on this clash we'll refer to Henry Ford. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to sort of the background of the album? Just one one thing, really. So you mentioned about Bowie having been a massive fan of, of Velvet Underground. Uh, he was quite starstruck by Lou Reed initially. So, um, again, you referred to classic albums. Yeah, quite maligned, but a, a good series, really. He said in that that um, he was petrified that Lou Reed said yes, that he'd like to work with me in a producer capacity. I had so many ideas and I felt so intimidated by my knowledge of the work that he'd already done. Lou had this great legacy of work. So clearly it was something of an ambition of Bowie's to, to work with Lou Reed. And, and as I'm sure we'll come on to later, it wasn't the last time they'd worked together either. But um, I think it's just a nice little thing that someone as even at this time, so revered as David Bowie, still had such himself such reverence to the body of work that Lou Reed had already put out with Velvet Underground. So yeah, that's, I just wanted to bring that up. So yeah, I mean, and that's that's all true. And, and as as a sort of referenced earlier, that Bowie had um, had written a song for and for Andy Warhol, um, which was on Hunky Dory, and he had he'd, he'd gone over to America and met met Warhol, played him the song, and Andy Warhol basically just thought he was a bit of a prick. So which. <laughs> In the context of that, like you can understand why he was quite nervous meeting Lou Reed because he'd gone over to America and Andy Warhol had just like, treated him like shit when he'd gone over and said, "Like I'm really impressed with everything you're all doing." So, Tim, how did you first come across uh, Transformer? All right, so I first heard Transformer a, a long time ago, actually. So my my auntie, my dad's sister, she's well, she's the person that got me into U two, and. Uh, as we'll talk about when we go through it on the zoo tv tour you two did a cover of satellite of love and through that 
she also introduced me to uh, Transformer because she had that. Now, that said, I, I didn't listen to it again for a very long time. And I was probably too young at the time to really appreciate it. I was probably only 12 when I heard it. So, you know, really, I have to say, I, it's, this is not an album I was hugely familiar with until we started researching for this clash. There's obviously some really famous songs on it, which I know very well. But the album as a whole, although I heard it quite a way back, it's only researching this clash that I've paid any real attention to it. Obviously, I'm assuming for you that you've got far more of a history with it. Yeah, I mean, so in in terms of obviously the most the most famous famous songs, "Walk on the Wild Side," most people will have heard that at some point. Um, my, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my hand up and say that I wasn't like nine, 95, 96, like bang into Lou Reed and Velvet Underground or anything like that. My first introduction to Perfect Day was the like a combination of through train spotting and then obviously the BBC had their children in need uh, sort of all celebrity cover and as my as I sort of got far more into into Bowie so around 2000 2001 I'd like got in got into Transformer and I've loved I've loved the album ever since so there are very um it's an album I've known for for a long time and enjoy enjoy a lot okay good stuff so I suppose Next thing to talk about is the album cover itself. So the front cover is a photograph by famous rock photographer, Mick Rock, Mm -hmm. um, taken from a live gig at the King's Cross Cinema in July of 1972. Uh, Mick Rock himself says he'd inadvertently overexposed the image, uh, but liked how it looked and just submitted it anyway. That's so 70s. It's like, like, well, you know. Yeah, it's good enough. It's, it'd be sound like to be honest. Like they've they've knocked out this album in a couple of months. It'd be fine. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> I mean, Lou Reed himself later said, in terms of the look on, because he's clearly wearing eyeliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did three to four shows like that, and then I went back to wearing leather. I was just kidding around. I'm not that into makeup. Mm, Lou, I think you like protesting a little bit there. Indeed. Yeah, I think you're protesting a bit too much there, Lou. You you wore a bit of makeup. Yeah. It, it's all right. Exactly. Don't worry about it, lad. So there's just uh, you mentioned Mick Rock took took the photo, and as he said, it was a bit of a happy accident that he overexposed it. Um, so there was an interview he did well early this year, January this year, with the Guardian, um, all around his his work in general. But around the, the Transformer cover, he, he basically said after he'd submitted it, because he liked it, he said, Lou said, immediately that was the shot. David was generally not so bothered with the photographs, while Iggy was out of his mind most of the time, which we'll come <laughs> to next week. <laughs> of course, Iggy was. So the reason I want to read this quote is the last line. Who'd believe that he's the one of them who's still alive today? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, tune in next week to hear a lot more of where that came from. So and the reverse the reverse of the album is a, is a shot of a model, and the, but I mean normally I don't tend to talk about the the back of the album. The reason I'm bringing bring this up is there is a there's a model there whose name I I apologise I haven't I haven't noted down, and a mate of Lou Reed. The reason I'm bringing this up is because the in the photograph the male model clearly appears to have a massive erection. <laughs> Now, part of the reason I'm bringing this up is when when this has been brought up before, Lou Reed has said 
basically his his mates did a Derek Smalls and stuffed a banana down his keg. <laughs> uh, Derek Smalls stuffed a cucumber wrapped in tin foil down his kegs. It's essentially the same thing. Like, okay, we're, we're talking we're talking the difference between a fruit and a vegetable. <laughs> it has the same impact. I, I'm telling you, mate. I am going to bring fruit and vegetable clash to the masses, whether you like it or not. I'm waiting until we get into Dreepsack Clash. <laughs> well, clearly that's not the case with the image on the back of the cover of Transformer. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Trying to be a bit more serious about it. It's, we overuse this word. It's an iconic album cover. Yeah, it, it is. Like, you only need to see that picture. Like, you wouldn't need to see the title of the of the album to know that that's Transformer. Like if if you if you're aware of your music history, you know that you know this cover. Yeah. And I would say although Andy Warhol had absolutely nothing to do with the album cover, it is so to me at least indelibly linked to the pop art movement. It's so evocative of the style of stuff that Warhol was producing. It's I mean with without question there's certainly the influence, the influence of Warhol is there. I mean, and and that beautifully leads us into into the first song. There's one more thing I want to say. Sorry, just to come back on the cover before we do go on to the first song. That the cover itself has become so iconic, so influential. Brian Molko from Placebo basically spent his entire career trying to become that version of Lou Reed. <laughs> Uh, that's a that's a fair old point as well. I'd never really considered that, but yeah, I mean, just with longer hair, quite. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so um, the I mean, you you did slightly stomp over my delicious segue. Sorry so... about that. <laughs> um, because Andy Warhol very much influences the first song of the album, "Vicious." So the opening line of the song was suggested by Andy Warhol. So he said, why don't you write a song called Vicious? Oh, you know, vicious like I hit you with a flower. <laughs> I mean, that's so fucking Warhol. Yeah, exactly. But as he said, that becomes the first line of the song. Yeah. I mean, there's part of me that's really annoyed by it, but like, I also, also quite like the fact that, I mean, he was very much himself. But yeah, definitely. So... <laughs> We're going to keep coming back to Warhol throughout this album, perhaps inevitably when we're talking about a Lou Reed album. And there is something to be said around the self-referential knowing lyrics that pervade most of the tracks. Yeah. I mean, in, t- in terms of the song, it's a, it's a good up-tempo opener to the album. Um, Bowie's backing vocals are are great. And... I think the the strongest thing to recommend it is it's got Mick Ronson wailing all over the end. I mean, yeah. I fucking love Mick Ronson. He's such a great guitarist. And he, he's not someone like, he's not unknown, but he's also never really placed in the pantheon of, you know, your, your Hendrixes, your Claptons, though, those people. He's, he's, he's never sort of included in those conversations, or at so, least the ones that I hear anyway. But you, you know, you're right, he's not. Um, I, I think that's probably, at least partially, because he was never a band leader in the way that Clapton and, and Hendrix obviously were, and Jimmy Page, uh, well, Led Zeppelin is Page and Plant, um, and Page has always been placed first in that, in that duo. 
uh, Mick Ronson wasn't that. He was the guitarist from the Spiders of Mars. So he's his body of work is not as obvious to your average punter. That's a that's a fair a fair explanation for it. Um, he's just a fucking great guitarist. And they, Phenomenal. Really, and I really like this song. Uh, yeah, so it's a really solid start. It's a really solid start. So as as you said, uh, the guitar is 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 great, and it's so it's so Ziggy Stardust. The other thing I've commented with the drums, you can't go wrong with a cowbell, and there's a cowbell <laughs> right the way through this track. Lovely, lovely stuff. Gotta love a cowbell. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you, you can love a cowbell in a song, or when watching Ski Sunday. <laughs> What like what? What is that about about ski fans? Oh, I'm going to take a massive cowbell and bang that whilst people are doing the fucking giant slalom. Why? Like that fella, that fella's going down a, a mountain at seventy miles an hour, but I'm going to ring a cowbell to show my appreciation. <laughs> um, the very last thing I'll say, as I say, I, I really like this song. Great, great start. The the chord structure. It reminds me of Gloria by Van Morrison. Uh, not just the chord structure, but the way the guitar, uh, the way the rhythm guitar is played, reminds me of Gloria. Mm, yeah, I can de- I can definitely see see where you come to that. Uh, it, it it is very evocative of of that of that song, really. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I, I think we've both said really really solid start to the album. So um, that's oh sorry, there is one more thing I just wanted to say in terms of facts. So this uh, was uh, a double A side with Satellite of Love. Which is the second single off the album? It did not perform very well, which, which is a surprise. Well, because both of them, both of them are absolute fucking crackers. I mean, it's not going to be a shock to anyone listening to this that we're probably going to say some nice things about Satellite of Love. It's not a bad tune, no. Uh, so yeah, it only re- reached one hundred and nineteen in the US uh, Billboard chart, which is, as I say, not 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 great. But um, anyway. We like it. So 1970s American record buying public, you're wrong. Move on. So uh, we move from a song uh, where the opening line was suggested by Andy Warhol to a song that is about Andy Warhol. So the so as part of the background to the album, Bowie had encouraged Lou Reed to tell stories from New York and uh, about the Velvet Underground. And that is very much a theme of this album, that New, New York, Velvet Underground, that whole scene pervades throughout yeah the the song itself it was originally recorded by the velvet underground and was about the 1968 attempt on andy warhol's life by the femi- uh, by the radical feminist writer valerie solances i think solanus i think i mean i had i will hold my hand up and say that i had no fucking clue that andy warhol had an attempt on his life before researching this and the title nope. the title of the song itself is a reference to the large scar across Andy Warhol's chest, which I'm led to I'm led to understand from my research that went from his esophagus essentially down, like through, through most of his. Ouch! Yeah, it, that's a that's a big owl. <laughs> it's a big owl scar there. Yeah, ow, not pleasant. Well, so yeah, he he, he only narrowly survived apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, but yeah, I had no idea either. I, I have to say, I should say, I, I've not really spent a lot of time researching the life and times of Andy Warhol uh, before we started looking at for this clash but um yeah okay and i mean in terms of the song again it's a good 
good um, up tempo. It's energetic. It's really enjoyable. I really like this song. Like thus far, I'm having a lovely time in this album. It, it's a it's a good song. It is a really good song. I think it's it's a lovely sort of counterpoint and come down after vicious. This might be me oversimplifying things somewhat, but with the fact that the bass line is played on a stand-up double bass, is it a little bit of a prelude to Walk on the Wild Side, which is another one that tells a lot of stories from Andy Warhol's The Factory? Yeah, I mean, you can you can certainly say there is a... You can see the lineage between the, between the two songs. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the, the sound of the song, the way the choral sound of the backing vocals in the chorus come in. Uh, I think it gives it a really nice depth. I really like the song. Uh, we, we will certainly definitely talk about backing vocals when we get to Walk on the Wild Side because the uh, ba- the female backing vocal group have a fucking cracking name but we yes i will i will hold i will hold back from from that until we until we get to that but yeah it's andy's chest it's a good song like this is a this is a good start to an album it is a really good start to an album just one more thing i want to read before we move on you said the opening line to vicious is so andy warhol there's a, there's a quote from warhol that I want to read about his shooting, which is, again, it's so Andy Warhol. Okay. Before I was shot, I always thought that I was more half there than all there. I always suspected I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that the way things happen in movies is unreal, but actually it's the way things happen in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real, whereas when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Right when I was shot, and ever since, I knew that I was watching television. The channels switch, but it's all television. What a load of bollocks. Now, I've never been shot in the chest, so sorry. I I might be doing Andy a great disservice there. He might be absolutely right, but that's so Andy Warhol. (laughs) I mean, and again, rolling forward to a later song on the album, that that sort of vacant presence... Like that's ascend- essentially part of the lines to Satellite of Love. Yeah. I love to watch things on TV. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, absolute nonsense from Andy Warhol as always, but uh, a really good song. So um, we then move on to Perfect Day. There are some uh, debates about the essentially the what this song is about. So it has been alleged that this was a reference to his heroin use. Reed disputes this. I mean, it doesn't help the fact that it was used in train spotting. Um, in the, no. in the the key the key overdose scene. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So there's a, there's a mont- montage of um, uh, heroin taken, and then as you said, Renton has an overdose uh, and sinks into the sinks into the car into the floor. Yeah, that's it? the scene. That's the scene. So whether Danny Ball selected the song because, as you said, of the stories about it being written about drugs, or whether whether that scene led to those, I don't know. I don't know. As you said, Lou Reed says that that's a load of bollocks. Lou Reed himself says it's a simple, conventional love song to the woman who was who would become his first wife, uh, Betty Kronstadt. Uh, other people have said there are uh, there are allusions to Reed's uh, conflict about his own sexuality, drug use, and even his ego. The, I mean, this is this is one of those songs that has been 
I mean, much like a lot of Dylan's output has been endlessly sort of analysed and what what does it what does it mean about the mu- about the musician and particularly because Lou Reed is uh, was a particularly curmudgeonly inter- interviewee. Um, yes, it, people people have read whatever they wanted into it. Um, Sorry, so I'm inclined to believe Lou Reed when you listen to the lyrics. I don't know, but well, all I'll say is this. If the song is a reference to heroin taking, I dread to think what on earth feed animals in the zoo is a euphemism for. (laughs) Those poor penguins. They saw too much. (laughs) So I've got no idea, but I mean, as you said, Lou Reed is one of those artists who, because of his connections with Andy Warhol and his, as you say, general um, grumpiness that people have often tried to read an awful lot of things into. I just wonder if for this one, people are trying to read things that probably aren't there. Um, I mean, in terms of the actual song. Wow. What what you can say, Mick Ronson's string arrangement is sumptuous. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a such a simple song, but it's elevated to something magnificent by the way the string sort of crescendo and they go up and down. It's it's just gorgeous. It's it's a beautiful beautiful song. Really, everything about it is it's perfect. It it is it is perfect the way it's put together. It's great. It's it, it is by far the best version of this song. Um, you mentioned the the BBC Children in Need song from 97, although it didn't actually start life out as a charity song for Children in Need. It was actually something that the BBC produced along with an uh, advertising agency to effectively promote the diversity of their musical output. So yeah, there was this, there was this version of Perfect Day, which was performed by a, a, a group of artists. So including, I'm not going to list them all, but including Reed himself, Bono, Bowie, Elton John, Suzanne Vega, Heather Small from M People. Heather Heather Small gets a fucking huge part in that. Annoyingly large. No shovel, though. (laughs) No No shovel. Poor fella. (laughs) Evan Dando's on there from the Lemonheads. Uh, Shane McGowan from the Pogues. Dr. John and uh, Tom Jones, who, like, frankly, brings things back up after Heather Small's got involved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I do definitely remember Dr. John because yes. I was, as soon as he started to, I was like, oh, that's different. I, I like you. Yeah, well, who definitely. are you? You're, you're interesting. Definitely. Uh, but anyway, that's not this version. And I think this version's much better. Oh, God, yeah. What I love is the juxtaposition between the quiet, underplayed, uh, genteel verses with the soundscape that comes in during the chorus. And then you've got, as you said, the string arrangement, which bursts through the double track vocals. uh, It's just glorious. I love, I love this song. I love this song. And it's one of those classic songs that sort of builds, like it starts with just a a really simple, really stripped back vocal with, a simple bit of piano and it it builds and it yep. oh it, as I say like the the word I the word I had written down was sumptuous yeah which is is a really good way of describing it I uh, I can't add to that so I won't try so from that we move on to hanging round 
which kind of speaks to to as we've talked about this is a very new york album and it's a fucking like this is such a bitchy song it's so a, I, like i i well, yeah it is so i wondered at, at first if it was an anti-drug song so with lyrics like you keep hanging around me and i'm not so glad you found me you're still doing things i gave up years ago so i wondered if it was a an anti-drug song but then i thought well Maybe it's just about a group of people that really annoy Lou Reed. And given, as you've already said, his general curmudgeonly demeanour, that's probably fairly plausible. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I would I would argue that it's it's definitely more than that. I mean, the, there are references to sprinkling angel dust. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's I, I've I've always loved this song. I love the tempo, the character, the characterization in the lyrics, the fact that it's it's a very it's very of its era sort of glam stomper oh yeah every everything about it it's very that era it's very ziggy era bowie as well it is it is and so as i said earlier as you as you alluded to as well this comes pretty much hot off the heels of ziggy stardust and you can hear that sound coming through this really puts me in mind of suffragette city really does yeah i mean that that is um off eleven zane uh no it's not it's on no it's not no Okay, can we cut that out? Because I'm no, just... it's staying in. Sorry, <laughs> ah. no, 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 you got Bowie wrong, and that's staying in. And I just called him Bowie, so it's definitely staying in. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it, I really, really like the honky tonk style piano part that goes through the chorus. It's, it's as he said, it just adds to that glam aesthetic that goes throughout the song. And I mean, just the the lyric, um, you've been hanging around. I'm not so glad I found you. <laughs> like, I mean, that's that's such a that's so cutting. It's yeah. it's great. It is. It's great. It is really good. Re- and as you said, what are we now? Four songs in, and they've all been really strong, and all different as well. Yeah, yeah. They they're all they're all different, and they've got all got their own unique thing about them. But all still that very New York. That New mm. York feel. The, the first, the first half of this album is so is so New York. Yeah, and I suppose, and I suppose that leads us nicely onto "Walk on the Wild Side." Yeah, which was released as a double A side with "Perfect Day" and was Lou Reed's biggest single. It got to number ten uh, in the UK and number sixteen in the US Billboard chart. I mean, and so the song itself. Before we get into into the the long grass with it, the the song itself was about some of the characters who hung around uh, Warhol's factory studio. So included, and I've not included every individual who's referenced on the song, but Hollywood Lawn, who was a transgender actress from Miami, Candy Darling, who was also the subject of the Velvet Underground song Candy Says, who was another transgender actress, Joe the Sugar Plum Fairy Campbell, who was an actor in one of Warhol's films amongst um, others. Uh, Sugar Plum, Plum Fairy is also a euphemism for a drug dealer. I don't know whether he was their drug dealer, but the fact the, that he's the, referenced... The song would uh, allude to the fact that he was. Yeah, it it, it would really. And it's, yeah, the it it, it is exactly what Bowie, what we talked about before, was telling these stories from New York and the Velvet Underground. And this, that's what the song, the song is. It is. Uh, so the bass line, you'll probably know, is very famously sampled uh, by a tribe called Quest in 1989 for their uh, phenomenally successful and phenomenally good Can I Kick It? Yes, you can. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, 
if you haven't heard Walk on the Wild Side before, but you recognise the bass line, that's where it's from. So the, the bass line that Tim refers to was played by Herbie Flowers, who played with everyone, really. Like So played with Harry Nielsen, uh, Tim's favourite, Brian Ferry, uh, George Harrison, Elton John, Roger Daltrey. He also had another legacy. He wrote Grandad by Clive Dunn. <laughs> no, so you say another legacy. It, that was a number one smash hit single in the UK. You could That's a bigger legacy than this album. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't really be as... Like the juxtaposition between... Walk on the Wild Side and Grandad <laughs> by Clive Dunn. I mean, there, there is a there is a world apart between the, them two. <laughs> there is, yeah, there is. The only other thing I want to say about the baseline is it's actually two different baselines. So you've got mm-hmm. the 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 deeper one, which is played on a stand up double bass, uh, and the other one, which is stuck, but which is played on a on a standard bass guitar, laid over the top of it. Really, really famous. Really, really, really really good it, i'm gonna go before you here sorry in, in terms of my views on the song itself it's a really simple composition you know you it, it, everything is pared down you've got really simple acoustic guitars really simple drums and it's the bass line that drives the song forward with the little string part just coming in and out and it allows the vocals to come forth for the stories that the song has to tell you to be heard. It's really good. It, it's fantastic. And I think we also need to, and we, we referenced it earlier, we need to reference the backing vocals and the fantastically named band they were. So the backing vocals on the, on the female backing vocals on the album were by a collective known as Thunderfies. <laughs> What a fucking name. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. I just want to ask you a question at this point, and this is something I'm going to mention a couple more times as we get towards the end of the album. Are the lyrics a little bit too self-referential? Is it a little bit too clever for its own good, this? Is it a little bit too much New York art scene? I, I, can, I can understand why you would why you would say that i i would say no for this song because the vignettes that he that he creates are they're not they're, they're not too long this they're, they're short sort of pictures of of the characters around around the studio so i i'm i'm okay with it but i can understand why someone would would query what i actually thought you were going to query and obviously in the era like it was recorded in 1972 I thought you were going to query around particularly the um, the line because it, it makes reference to all the coloured girls well, sing. Yeah. And, what does it? So uh, does and, he mean coloured coloured girls in the un, uh, racial epithet way, or is it a reference to drag queens? I don't know, and I I, I can't honestly say that I know. There's, so. there's a lot of references to transsexuals, to 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 homosexuality, to drug taking, and so as an aside, one of my favourite things about this song is. Whilst in the US, they were a little bit more streetwise, let's say, in terms of the, the radio station owners, that they wouldn't allow most of those lyrics to be played during the day. So there was an edited version that was played. In the UK, 
people weren't quite so aware of the heroin scene and everything that came with it. So the version that was played on UK radio stations in 1972 was unedited. That's great. Yeah, they they didn't they didn't pick up on the line about giving head. <laughs> Like that? No, that that wasn't that wasn't picked up no. at all. <laughs> really, not, really good. Um, yeah, as as you said, the line about color girls. I don't know what it refers to. So, it, 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 but it did it did stick out, and I thought, hmm. I mean, we say we certainly need to obviously to to men, to mention it. We're not sure what what it actually refers to, whether it is tran- transsexual women or whether it is. Or whether it is um, referring to people of a different different uh, racial ethnicity to Lou Reed, we, we can't we can't really say because we don't know. But we obviously need need to make reference to it. In terms of Lou Reed himself in, and the and the song, he had a difficult relationship with the song, as he felt it constrained and defined his career after that. But eventually, he he did he did come to terms with it. He, I, I mean, Lou Reed it, as as we've mentioned before, was a difficult individual, particularly for people interviewing him. But there is a quote from him where he says, if I retire now, walk on the wild side is the one I'd want to be known by my masterpiece. I found my secret with that song. And that's the one that will make him forget heroin. And if you, if you're not, if you're not aware of it on the uh, Velvet Underground and Nico album, there is a song called heroin. I actually quite like the yeah. song Heroin, like, but let let let's face it, he he's not exactly downplaying no. the saying drugs are bad. He he's he's very much a fan of the heroin in in that song. The last thing I want to say, I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. This is another massive pitch shift from hanging around to come to something like Walk on the Wild Side, which sounds it's completely different. Yeah, five songs in now, are we? And everyone has had a very different sound. There's a lot of variety here. Yeah, and in terms of first, so on a vinyl, this is the first heart. This is the first side of the album. That's not fucking no. bad. That for a hit rate, no. you've you've done very well. Yep, very much so. So we start the second half of the album with makeup. Um, and again, it's different from anything else that's gone before. It's it feels, and I apologize to the to listeners, it feels very New York in in terms of in terms of its sound and, and the feel of it. Um the the brass is is very prominent in this. I really like it. Um and you know, there's a clear reference to to, to sexuality and to the um to the gay to the gay and uh, transgender community in New York at that time. Definitely, definitely. And well, the the song it is clearly about a, a transvestite or transsexual woman putting on their makeup and and going out. Well, as the song says, coming out of our closet, which was a, a clearly a slogan used by the by the gay community and and, and transgender community. You got to say for 1972, you got to give that this song some credit for raising the awareness and the prominence of those sorts of issues yeah it's it's um it's very progressive i, I mean i and i i do apologize to um my his, my history and my notes aren't necessarily as detailed as they could be i think the stonewall riots were in new york in 68 off the top of my head i, don't know I, I could 
I could I could well be I could well be wrong. So obviously, gay rights were were, were something that that needed to be fought for in in this period. And yeah, it's it's a very progressive progressive song to to be included in this album. And again, for people listening to this when it first came out, it must have been so transgressive listening to yeah. these to these tales and these denizens of iniquity. I'm sure that um, Mary Whitehouse would probably refer to yeah. them as so in terms of the song itself like you said the, the brass part the tuba part which plays alongside the bass line it's it's really good again the guitar part is really understated doesn't dominate anything but it just complements the bass line and everything just sits nicely and t- drives things along which let blue reed's treacly voice just ooze the sultriness that the lyrics of this song demand Oh, you've you've put that beautifully there, Mister uh, Tim. <laughs> so, can I just before we move on, I want to read. So, not everyone liked this song. I want to read a quote from Nick Tosh's review from 1972 in Rolling Stone. Now, so I know the I know the exact quote you're going to refer to because obviously uh, this is this is something that I was was to speak to later, but I think it's important to to reference it here. I'm going to preface this with an an apology to the listeners because there are some fairly horrific homophobic slurs within this quote. But I want to read it to, firstly, to give a view of the fact that the album, as Kev said, was really transgressive and people will either have responded positively to that or not. But secondly, to give an idea of just how attitudes uh, to the sorts of language people can use uh, have changed in the last, you know, nearly 50 years. So again, I apologize in advance for the words I'm about to to say, because I absolutely do not support these views, but I think it's important to read this quote written at the time. So he said, makeup is as corny and innocuous as I feel pretty from West Side Story. There's no energy, no assertion. It isn't decadent, it isn't perverse. It isn't rock and roll. It's just a stereotypical image of the faggot as sissy traipsing around and lisping about effeminacy. Fucking hell. So the first thing I want to say, apart from those abhorrent terms, is that is still available in 2021 on the Rolling Stone website with no disclaimer, with no um, warning, trigger warning for the words. It's just there right now like jesus christ that's awful i would i would like to say and we will get we will reference nick Tosius's uh review again fuck you fuck you and your fucking homophobic homophobic caveman ideals fuck off yep exactly uh so once again sorry for for any of the listeners that were offended we outright reject those views but i felt it important to 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 raise it because and no i'm i'm glad that you raised it because um unfortunately um his review and we will get we will get into this when we talk about the reviews it, it continues in that vein uh, so the, and the worst thing is that's not the only time within that review that homophobic slurs are used i'm not going to say any of the other ones that he did say but they're littered throughout it it's awful yeah so let's move on to something far more positive which is the next song on the album, and it's a fucking corker. Oh, God, it Satellite is. Satellite of Love. It was originally written 
whilst uh, Lee Reed was part of the Velvet Underground. He, they even demoed it for their album Loaded. Failed to make the cut. How? I mean... <laughs> so I've not heard the version that was demoed. Apparently it's available. So it was, it was released on a 1995 compilation, which was called Peel Slowly and See. Uh, I haven't heard that. Apparently it was a lot more up-tempo, a lot more poppy sounding, but I've not heard it. But yeah, like how on earth this didn't make the cut? I've no idea. It's a great song. I mean, so Reed himself says the story of the song is about a fella watching a satellite launch on TV and getting the worst kind of jealousy about his unfaithful girlfriend who has been bold with Harry, Mark and John. (laughs) She has indeed. Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday Wednesday and Thursday. But they chilled on Sunday. <laughs> I was about to say, like, she didn't go for the full Craig David six, six days. <laughs> oh, dear. The, the song itself, so Bowie is so important, like, important to this song. And Mick Ronson as well. I wouldn't mean to demean his his contribution to it. But Reed said of, of Bowie, he has a melodic sense above anyone else in rock and roll. Most people can't sing some of his melodies. Take Satellite of Love. There's a part at the end where his voice goes all the way up. It's fabulous. And it is. It's yeah. magnificent. I'd all, I also want to point out that this this song, as I'm sure you, you're well aware, it's got a recorder on it. I mean, you've got to fucking love a classic song that has a recorder on it. Played by Mick Ronson. Can I just be, let's just be clear. A recorder, fine. An entire orchestra of recorders, as certainly from our generation, we were all made to play in primary school, very much not fine. Well, if they all played it as well as Mick Ronson, then <laughs> then that would be different. But primary school kids do not play recorder as well as Mick Ronson. Yeah, that's, that's what we can say. Did you, did you ever have in your school, sorry, we're going off tangent again. Like, so everyone got the, and I'm sorry, I don't know the terms. Everyone got like the little one, which is about a foot long to play. Yeah, the blue one. Yeah, but then if you if you were good, you got one of the bigger ones that like came in different pieces. And I, I the long the long brown one. Yeah, I want one of them. <laughs> they look well cool. I don't want this shitty thing. <laughs> I was never good enough to get one of the long brown ones. Oh god, I. <laughs> if if um if someone was was listening to this podcast out loud. And just just came into came into the room at the point where, <laughs> where you were saying I was never good enough to get one of the long brown ones. I apologise to to the uh, person who downloaded this who now is having to explain what that actually meant. I think uh, I was referring to musical instruments, Kevin. Uh, woodwind is a is a crucial part of any orchestra, and I think you've got a filthy mind, and I think you should apologise to the listeners for bringing this show down to a level which, frankly, we've never needed to descend to before. Uh, I'm sorry, I. I wish that we could actually reach that level. (laughs) We aspire to that. Satellite of love, then. It's great. It's absolutely majestic. It's beautifully layered. So, a couple of things I want to say. Like Bowie's backing vocals are unmistakable. They they almost detract from the song itself, but they don't. No. You but it's definitely Bowie. Oh God, yeah. Like as soon as soon as you hear it, you know it's him. And the 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 way the the bit where his vocals and the brass comes in and that sort of second second movement of the song is yeah oh it's so good it's so good similar to Perfect Day there's a juxtaposition between verse and chorus it's not quite as prominent here but it's similar so again there's a soundscape you've got the double track vocals in the chorus 
you've got the horns coming, you've got the strings coming. Oh God, it's fucking wonderful. And like you said, the end is just absolutely epic. The exit to the song with more horns, choral lines, clapping, strings. It's just, oh, I really, really love this song. I mean, you've thrown pretty much everything at it and you've hit the bullseye with all of it. It's it's fucking brilliant. It's such a good song. So what I think what needs to be said, and we'll go, for, we'll certainly touch on this next week, like what an amazing producer David Bowie was. God, yeah. To be able to come up with so many varied styles on one album, to be able to produce songs of such beauty as This and Perfect Day, songs which are so raw as 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 vicious, and songs which are quite playful like Makeup. Like, okay, Lou Reed clearly deserves some credit, as does Mick Ronson, but fucking hell. Like, the, the, the album craft here, the production work, the musicology, brilliant. Well, I mean, and um, I think it's obviously yes. We we have to talk about the musicianship. So obviously, Lou Reed's songs like this song would be nothing nothing without them. Ronson's musicality, his ability, um, is is incredibly important. But the mixing, yeah, because I, I think that like in particular particularly in this song, and we talked about in Perfect Day, it, the the way the way that this song's mixed, like particularly the brass with the with the clapping and the the backing vocals, is it. It's it's a, a sonic assault, but it's a it's like being assaulted with something like flowers. <laughs> so to go back to the first, <laughs> to the first song, it's not nice callback. It's not a vicious assault, but it's an assault all the same, and it's it is a wondrous piece of work. It it absolutely is. Just before we move on, then, so I, I mentioned earlier when when I was telling you how I first heard this album. It was covered by U2 on the Zoo TV tour in 92 and 93. And they actually, with that, had Lou Reed appearing on the video screens to sort of sing the, the final verse and chorus. Although that was the first Lou Reed song I heard and the first version of this song I heard. It's not great, to be honest with you. It's fine, but it was not brilliant. It's also been covered by, and we finally get to this week's terrible individual in 2013 to uh, commemorate Lou Reed's death. It was covered by Morrissey. Oh God! Obviously, um, when we when we do um, the idiot next week, we could talk about Bowie's, uh, particularly when he uh, was the Thin White Duke and in the depths of his cocaine addiction, his professed. Um, admiration for fascism and describing Hitler as the first rock and roll star. Obviously, um, Morrissey has taken that further. Very much so. And um, I don't want to talk about Morrissey anymore. He's a dick. Let's move on. (laughs) So let's move on to Wagon Wheel, which is a very glam era, Ziggy style stomper. It's a cracking up-tempo song. I've always liked Wagon Wheel. It's a it's one that I've always enjoyed. I love the backing vocals at the end of the song, which is obviously Thunder Thighs coming back in. It, it's a really I really like Wagon Wheel. Okay, hmm, a little bit of debate here. Well, not debate. I, I, I don't feel as fondly about it as you do. I mean, it is T Rex tastic, which is which is not, for me is not a bad thing. I like I like T Rex. So there's a breakdown in the middle where it's just a guitar with a load of delay on it and vocals with a load of reverb on it, which is really jarring given the rest of the song being, as you said, a sort of up-tempo, glammy, almost rockabilly with the backing vocals. 
I have no idea what the song's about. Sorry, the lyrics make no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I have no idea what the song's about, but I, I really, I do really enjoy it, and I like. I know, you, I know you. You've just said that you don't particularly like the breakdown. I like the breakdown because of how it comes back in, and I really like that. So I've got to be clear. I don't dislike this song. There's far better songs on the album. It doesn't do a great deal for me, to be honest with you. It's fine. Fair, fair, fair enough. They, they, I, w- I won't deny that there are better songs on the album, but I do really like it. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I don't have anything else to say. It's Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so we then move on to a New York telephone conversation. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a shock for the listeners. I think I think they might know something that's something we're going to say later. I am not keen on this. It's too theatrical. Like, uh, yeah, it it does nothing for me. I find it really annoying. Actually, I find it really annoying. the The only thing the only thing I would say is that it doesn't hang around too long. That that's the the thing going in its favor. I have written it is mercifully short. Yeah. Okay. So the song is basically well, according to Louder Sound, in an article they wrote in 2018, it's a gossipy send up of. Andy Warhol's diaries, or to come back to that Rolling Stone review uh, from Nick Toshis, he said it's a cutesy poke at New York pop sphere gossip and small talk. If anyone possibly gave two shits about that in the first place, this brings to mind the more childish aspects of Bowie's oeuvre, which I don't like. Uh, I just said Bowie again, sorry, Bowie's oeuvre. (laughs) And when we went through Walk on the Wild Side, I suggested that the lyrics then might be a little bit too knowing and too clever and too self-referential. These definitely are. This is, oh, look at this cool scene. I'm sorry, no, I don't like this at all. Yeah, it's it's very arch. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's it's very self-referential. We've talked about the the album is is mining that new york community that he was in oh, i could not give less of a shit about this like exactly. it's yep yeah so i think i think on the basis that neither of us are particularly keen on it it's best to move on to i'm so free yes and again it's very reminiscent of that era's uh, bowie well it's ziggy tastic isn't it yeah mick ronson's guitars drive this whole thing it's a perfectly good up-tempo rocker, really. As I, after a couple of songs which, for me, weren't great, this is much better. Uh, yeah, again, I've got no idea what it's about. It, it contains a reference to St. Germain, Germain Cousin of France. I no idea why she was canonised, but Lou Reed seems to want to repent to her for some reason. Uh, yeah, I think Mick Ronson's guitar absolutely makes this song. And actually, I, I think if you listen to the guitar on this, and I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into things, but I think you can see where Billy Corgan gets his inspiration from for, for the Smashing Pumpkins sound, because there's there's a real similarity there. I think. I mean, I mean, I hadn't really considered that, but yeah, there's there's a sound, there's certainly a again there's there's lineage you can you can hmm. see there. Of course, he's going to be influenced. Like this is as we I'm sure we'll go on to say that this is an incredibly influential and well known album. It is, it is. But yeah, I'm so free. Good song, not particularly innovative but a, a nice up-tempo rock song um and so we then finish with goodnight ladies a song where it can be described that reed was imagining his interior life as a nocturnal nightmarish cabaret i, I saw it described as again it's it's really new york and when talking about the album in general and his 
style of writing Lou Reed said I just write about I just wrote about people I knew and where I came where I came from and like the the whole album is very much that and this this song is is within the same vein it is it's about a guy that's been out on a Saturday night but he's going home alone (laughs) something to which back in my late teens I can certainly relate (laughs) every every fellow will yeah good night ladies (laughs) <laughs> it's not worked out for me in terms of the sound so that the tuba part is back this this puts me in mind of of rainy day women from blonde on blonde oh god that's a lovely comparison i hadn't again i hadn't really considered that but yeah that's uh and again bob dylan has, has mined new york for for his yeah. um over as well i like it yeah i i, I mean i wrote down that i really like it the what i would what i will say is that the second half of the album feels lighter in in content than the than the first half we're gonna come on to a song and i come back to that next week but i agree uh, the other thing else it is another unique sounding song there's so many changes of pace on this album yeah it's it's an album that even i mean new york telephone conversation which neither of us are particularly keen on it keeps moving the goalposts like yeah. the the on like and i think the the reason the new york telephone conversation is important in there because if you have wagon wheel then i'm so free they are very of a type yeah i don't think you could really have the two next to him if you're constantly moving around so i like i like this i think it's a really interesting way to end the album however it goes on too long that's a fair that's a fair point if it was three minutes three and a half minutes it'd be fine it'd be a nice sort of dry black humor way of ending an album this does not deserve it to be the longest song on the album, but it is. No, I think I think you I think you make a fair point that it it hangs around a little too long. So that is the end of the album. In terms of how it was received, it was generally received pretty well. Sales were were pretty good, and I'm sure uh, Tim will go on to speak to that. It often makes the best of album list. It, not necessarily near the top, but it is incredibly influential. Not all the reviews were positive. We return back to the uh, reprehensible Nick Toshes in Rolling Stone. He highlighted four quality songs, so he gave it some credit. Hanging Round and Satellite Love, but he does he dismissed most of the album as. And I apologise for the. Um, he uses more reprehensible terms as Tim has pointed out earlier, but arty farty kind of homo stuff that lacks assertiveness i mean what the fuck does that mean it lacks assertiveness yeah it just fuck off so the word so i've got another quote from that that review this one thankfully doesn't contain any homophobic slurs reed himself thinks the album's great i don't think it's nearly as good as he's capable of doing the fuck are you his primary school teacher piss off However, um, Tim, before we get on to um, sales or anything like that, I think as we, uh, as I decided to term him in our previous clash, uh, Nobby McGee, better known as... Uh, Robert Criscow. <laughs> Robert Criscow. What does Nobby McGee have to say? Okay. What he said, has he, he gave Transformer a B-. minus. Which isn't a great because he, he gave Lou Reed a B plus. He gave it like a minus. <laughs> right. All that's left of this great singer and songwriter is his sly intelligence. And sometimes I'm not so sure about that. Whether this is scene making music or anti scene making music doesn't matter. It's effete, 
ingrown and stripped to essentials. Oh, no, my apologies. And stripped to inessentials. Okay, I understand all those words. I still don't understand what fucking point he's making there. So concerningly, I think I kind of agree with some of the things he's saying. I mean, I think B- minus is perhaps a bit harsh, but I don't think he's too fired of the mark, for me at least. And I'm spoiling where we're going to next week. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, other opinions are available. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, but we we are going to do this as a regular feature. Nobby McGee is going to be here every week. After, as, like, as I said previously, like he will now be known as Nobby McGee, the brother of Bobby McGee. <laughs> fuck is Bobby McGee? Uh, right, uh, the Janis Joplin song, Me and Bobby McGee. Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, let's do, let's do some stats. This album reached number 13 in the UK, number 12 in Australia, and it reached number 29 on the Billboard chart in the US. It's been certified gold in Australia, France, and Italy, and in the UK, it's been certified as platinum with over 425,000 copies sold. So I think it's fair to say that its popularity, certainly within this country, was massive. Which I, I would I would say that without question, you can link to the, the Bowie link is, is important to that. Definitely. So there was a spike in sales after Lou Reed's death in 2013. So uh, in the week following his death, it was charted amongst the top 25 albums on Amazon Music. <laughs> So it appears so we've we've read some negative reviews and some positive reviews from the time. As with all albums, it seems that there's a reappraisal later on. So in 1997, a poll which was jointly organized by the eclectic group of the HMV, Channel 4, The Guardian, and Classic FM. Huh? <laughs> uh, in that poll, it was voted as number 44 and the greatest albums of all time. The NME had a similar list in 2000. They voted it as number 55 and the greatest albums of all time. And just to prove that this album doesn't need to be in a palindromic position in all of these lists, in 2003, the Rolling Stone ranked it as 194 in their top 500 albums of all time list, despite the horrific views of their original reviewer, one Nick Toshis. So um, the only other thing I'll say, just a little epitaph to the story of David Bowie and Lou Reed. They they continued their working relationship and their friendship, really, for a number of years after. However, it was not without its troubles. So in 1979, the two apparently got into a fist fight at the Chelsea Rendezvous restaurant. I mean, of course, there's a restaurant in Chelsea called Rendezvous. Was this um, Chelsea in New York or Chelsea in London? No, in London, in London. Okay, okay. So uh, following a gig that Lou Reed had played at the Odeon, the Hammersmith Odeon, sorry. And this is a story, according to an article in Uncut magazine in 2007, Chuck Hammer, who had played guitar with Lou Reed at the Hammersmith gig, he said, Lou had been discussing details regarding his upcoming new album, as yet unrecorded. Lou asked David if he'd be interested in producing the record and David replied, yes, but only on condition that Lou would stop drinking and clean up his act. And on that reply, chaos ensued, with Reed attacking Bowie and repeatedly hitting him in the head. <laughs> so, right, again, we'll get into this more next week, but Bowie himself had his demons with addiction, which by 79, he pretty much got through. So it's not an unreasonable thing to say, clean up your act and you're laughing. 
Lou didn't take so kindly to that suggestion. Well, I mean, as, as we will definitely get into, he's had to try and fucking clean up Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he doesn't need to try and do it with Lou Reed. He's already been to the dark side. It's, it's going to yeah. be fu- like he doesn't need to do it again. So with that, shall we do best song, worst song? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's where we should go as the, as that is the general format. Okay, so uh, you led us through this album, so you go first. What's your best song? What's your worst song? So the worst song I don't think is going to become uh, is going to be a galloping surprise to to the listeners. Uh, New York Telephone Conversation. It's Arch. It's Twee. It's Wang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like as as we've said before, it's. Don't come here for um, in-depth uh, quality. <laughs> it's quality. Wank. Yeah, it's just wank. It's no good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What's your face for it? What's your best song? I mean, this this is this is a toughie um, because I like so much else on the album. I think I think I'm gonna come. I think I'm gonna come down on Satellite of Love. Is right. It's. It's a hard one because Perfect Day is absolutely magnificent and Walk on the Wild Side is is beautifully done and ha- it's like so, so well put together. But Satellite of Love, like just everything about it draws me in and then floors me with, with the second half of it. Yeah. Uh, so for me, worst song, absolutely right. New York Telephone Conversation, it's annoying. But as I said earlier, at least it's mercifully short. And that's the best thing I can say about it. I don't like it. And I, I didn't have to think long and hard. It's clearly Satellite of Love. It, I adore it. It's a fairly simple song. It's a fairly simple tune. Bowie takes it and makes it epic. Like you said, the, the last half is wonderful. It's glorious. I love Satellite of Love. Best song by a mile. It's it's a fantastic song. There are some, as I say, wonderful songs. And the first the first half of the album is is an immense, immense piece of work. It is. Uh, although giving well, I'm just no, this isn't a spoiler. It's a little teaser for next week to keep the audience interested. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second half of the album does suffer a bit, actually. I think it does tail off a bit. And that's a shame. And that's what I, the track order. Is all important. I think if you moved, if you move Satellite of Love to later in the album, I know it's already on side two, but or, or if you moved uh, even Walk on the Wild side onto side two, you, you could switch the, uh, the order of songs, and I think you'd leave people feeling very, at least me, feeling very differently about the album. Side two tails tails off, and it's a shame. Okay, so obviously that is something that we will pick up in on in our next week's in next week's pod. Then it is indeed. Uh, so that has been this week's show all that is left as usual is what humorous lines is kevin going to come up with this week (laughs) to tell you how to keep in touch with the show so kev so if you're a male and you want to explain to a woman who is an expert in in her field about how she's wrong about being an expert in her field (laughs) you may want to try twitter um (laughs) and you can find find us on at clash album on Instagram, you can find us at Clash Album. And if you are resolutely old school, you could send us an electronic mail via albumclash at gmail.com. What I love about these things is that like, it, we're both too scared of Instagram to really talk about what you might want to do on Instagram. <laughs> we don't understand it. It's because I don't really know Instagram. 
apart from the, there's usually some kind of uh, professional sports person who's been horrifically racially abused on it. So much like Twitter. Well, yeah. So I mean, I can make. I'm sure I can make a reference to that next week. People are fucking awful, um, and our Instagram account. Sorry to again lift the uh, curtain on the production of the show. Our Instagram account is run by Kev's partner because she understands all that stuff, and we don't. We're too old. Yeah, we're we're just too old to uh, take photos of our breakfast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, right. I'm uh, I'm going to let you deal with the fallout from that one. I meant that other people, like from what I'm led to believe from Instagram, take photos of their breakfast. Listen, mate. You, like anytime you want to put the spade down, you feel free. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm calling an end to this nonsense now. That is the end of this week's album clash join us obviously next week to find out uh what we think of the idiot and which of these two albums will prevail in the ring of death but uh, yeah that's about it so i guess i'll say goodbye i've been tim i've been kath and we'll see you next time Ta-ra. Ta-ra.